0: Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all Elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. In Hollywood, Walt Disney has turned over almost the entire facilities of his studio for the production of army and navy instructional films, some of them
1: involving closely guarded military inventions and techniques.
0: Hello and welcome to Ink & Paint Inbetweeners, our series of bonus episodes expanding on the story of the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon In these short bonus episodes, we're sharing history and stories related to the Disney animated classics that sit just outside of the films themselves and complement our main Ink & Paint episodes. In this Inbetweener, we look at the collision between Disney animation and world history with their work during the Second World War. On December 6, 1941, operations at Walt Disney Productions were proceeding as normal. The studio had been rocked by the debilitating union strike in May, the aftermath of which resulted in half of the staff being let go. In August and September, Walt Disney and a small team had undertaken their goodwill tour of Latin America to establish new relationships and gather material for future projects as well as their slate of shorts and The Good Neighbor films, the staff at the studio were continuing their work on the many features still stumbling through production, including The Wind in the Willows, Alice in Wonderland, and the far more pressing Bambi. The financial problems which had plagued the studio since the release of Pinocchio, though, were about as bad as they had ever been, and Walt and his brother and business partner Roy were facing the very real possibility of losing the company altogether. And then, on December 7th, 1941, Japan attacked the U.S. naval base in Pearl Harbor, and America entered the Second World War. Within hours, Walt Disney Productions would transform from an animation studio into an army base, with 500 men stationed to protect the nearby Lockheed Martin facility. For the next four years, their output would be concerned almost entirely with the war effort, through a series of training films, propaganda shorts, and other initiatives to support the U.S. and its allies. By forcing a pause on their wider creative development, the war offered the studio an opportunity to support their country, refocus their skills and resources, and offer a much-needed life raft, not to solve their financial problems, but to put them on hold. The move towards developing training films, the most significant contribution from Disney to the war effort, actually began a year before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Walt had been concerned about tarnishing the studio's image as a centre for entertainment, but driven by financial need, he had conceded that the form could be adapted for educational purposes without damaging their reputation. In November 1940, he offered their services to the Defence Committee of the Association of Motion Picture Producers as well as the National Defence Advisory Board to make training in educational films for their use. The US were not yet involving themselves in the war in Europe, but Walt saw these potential contracts as a way of bringing in extra revenue for the studio. In March 1941, he established a Defence Films Division at the studio to prepare for these projects, headed initially by staff writer Robert Spencer Carr, who was responsible for many of the initial contracts. The problem was that animation was still seen by the general public as nothing more than entertainment, and despite the Disney animated features, was still mostly used for short-form cartoons. Its educational possibilities until this point had been mostly untapped and thus unproven. Before they could secure contracts, they had to have something to sell. The division reached out to defence and aerospace company Lockheed Martin, and proposed collaborating on a short subject on aircraft riveting, as a proof of concept for their training films. An engineer from Lockheed was brought to the studio and the small team began brainstorming how to make the film as quickly, cheaply, and clearly as possible. On April 3rd, 1941, 37 representatives from the US Office of Education, the US Forestry Service, the National Defense Advisory Committee, and Caltech gathered at the Burbank studio for a presentation from Walt on their training film's proposal. He began by showing a series of clips from previous projects, the animated sequence from Servant's Entrance, the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence from Fantasia, and a story reel for Wind in the Willows, as a demonstration of the scope of their capabilities. He followed this with the Baby Weems sequence from the as-yet-unreleased The Reluctant Dragon as a way of showing how they could make an effective short on limited budget and resources. Finally, he presented a storyboard version of the Aircraft Riveting film, named Four Methods of Flush Riveting, and beginning with this opening crawl. The following film uses a simplified technique developed by the Walt Disney Studio to demonstrate the quickest and cheapest method whereby the animation medium can be applied to national defense training. The response was instant and ecstatic. The animation will be basic and rudimentary, certainly by comparison to the recently released Fantasia, But even in storyboard form, it was clear that the division's simple, visually-driven approach would work. The choice of method to be used in flesh riveting is based on the thickness of the sheet next to the manufactured head. We have tried other ways the ordinary, realistic film and found it unsatisfactory, said John Grierson, head of the National Film Board of Canada, following the presentation. I believe the very abstraction in the model we saw is part of the success of the methods. It simplifies, prevents wandering of the attention, brings the point of your teaching into focus, I am convinced that certainly, in the technical film, the animated way is the best from the teacher's point of view. Walt was pleased. We have the plant, the equipment and the personnel, he said, and we're willing to do anything we can to help in any way. Straight away, Grierson offered the division their first contract, securing the Canadian rights for four methods of flush riveting and commissioning, at cost, trailers selling war bonds and a short on the boys' anti-tank rifle, which would be called Stop That Tank. The day after the Pearl Harbor attack, the US Navy made their first commission to the studio, requesting 20 films on aircraft identification in order to train US troops to identify US and allied aircraft from Axis aircraft.
1: The F-4F is a mid-wing monoplane with some dihedral. In this head-on view, two scoops are visible on the underside of the wing.
0: Now that The Division would have a steady series of projects, Walt appointed Ub Iwerks as director of many of the training films, a perfect complement to his analytical and technical mind. In the past, Walt's decision-making had been driven by emotion and instinct, but while this had led to exciting outcomes creatively, he was never adept at making good business decisions, often resulting in fraught business partnerships with distributors and other partners. With all of the studio's output during the war, Walt refused to make any sort of profit, committed to supporting the war effort. As such, he offered to make the films at cost. What that meant for the studio and what that meant for the army contractees, though, were two very different things, the latter only accounting for the making of the actual short rather than the substantial printing and negative costs. As a result, the war projects, and in particular the training films, often came at a loss for the studio themselves. The aircraft identification films, or the WEFT series, Wings, Engines, Fuselage, Tail, became a trial by fire in many ways for the training film division. The series was canceled before it was even completed and was considered a failure, but the fault did not lie with the staff at the studio. The films had been rushed into production by the Navy before the identification system could be properly tested, and it quickly became apparent that their method was flawed, something the films highlighted and that the Navy were willing to take the blame for. What the series did offer, though, was an opportunity to refine their skills and better prepare for the work ahead. By the end of the war, the Defence Films Division had produced close to 170 training films, none of which were for any financial profit. To keep costs down and to accommodate for the insanely short production schedule, they were almost all produced in black and white, and rather than using the top animation staff, anyone with a commercial or graphic art background were brought in to animate the films, including members of the ink and paint department. Where the traditional animated feature would cost $200 to $250 a foot, the training films needed to cost as little as $4 a foot, a drastic reduction after the years of excess with Pinocchio, Fantasia and Bambi. Walt was forced to lower his expectations and expect a lower standard of work, but was bolstered by their contribution to the war effort. There were important innovations though in the training films. The simple graphic approach would become vital after the war with the studio's transition to television, where they adopted the same techniques for their educational programs. There were also fascinating experiments with color in one series, where the functional color technique was used. The psychological impact of certain colors were used to distinguish and emphasize certain graphic elements, a method that had been developed by psychologist Fay birren There were occasions where it became necessary to use military stock footage in the films, but often this was of low quality and quantity. A small live-action crew were given full access to military facilities and operations, and the techniques developed by this unit would become vital following the war with the studio's series of live-action nature shorts. In order to preserve these techniques for the future, Walt had a manual compiled a year into the making of the training films. In the introduction to the manual, he wrote, In times of war, many things like flying and medical science make terrific strides. So it is with our business, which unfortunately is still saddled with the misnomer cartoon. In the last year or so, we've done comparatively little cartoon work, but a great deal of animated picture work. The techniques of our business have changed. Our horizons have rolled back almost to infinity regarding the educational material that we can handle. Perhaps in the future, the demands on us for the educational type of film will be as important as the demand for entertainment alone. Even more prolific than the training films were the custom military insignia designed by artists at the studio during the war. Military units from both US and Allied armed forces wanted something distinct for their insignia, and requests started to come in for use of the Disney characters on planes, jackets, and other paraphernalia. Rather than simply giving them permission, Walt set up a unit specifically to design the insignia for them, free of charge. As with the training films, Walt was not interested in making any kind of profit. The unit was headed by draftsman Hank Porter, who was responsible for drawing many of the Disney-themed comic strips for Good Housekeeping magazine, as well as many of the classic posters for Disney films and shorts during the 30s and 40s. The artist used characters from across all of the Disney films and shorts up until that point, including the Silly Symphonies, the features, and their five signature characters, Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, Pluto, and goofy. A Lockheed Hudson bomber ready for delivery is decorated with ferocious Pluto. The inscription tells the story. He's itching for a fight. Sometimes letters would come in with descriptions of the unit and what character they might like, while others submitted rudimentary designs they wanted to see executed. Most requests came from whole units, but some were requests from individual servicemen and women for their own personal insignia. The most requested character was also Disney's most popular, Donald Duck, whose tempestuous personality seemed a better fit for the tone of army life than the perpetual Boy Scout Mickey Mouse. Between 1941 and 1945, it is suspected that around 1,270 insignia were designed, though that number does not likely reflect the full catalogue of designs made. While they brought no financial benefit to the studio, they were a huge success for the war effort boosting morale for the units who requested them. With the establishment of the United States Air Force in 1947, the insignias created by the studio were cancelled, though some were still occasionally produced and used through to the 1970s. They are perhaps the most endearing legacy of the studio's contribution to the war. Housewives of America, one of the most important things you can do is to save your waste kitchen fats. bacon grease, meat drippings, frying fats. For fats, make glycerin and glycerin makes explosives. Despite popular belief, Walt Disney Productions only produced a small number of animated shorts designed specifically as propaganda. A small handful are fascinating works of their own and represent not just subtle developments in their animation style, but Walt's own thoughts on the role of propaganda. The first pieces of propaganda were the trailers created for the National Film Board of Canada to promote the sale of war bonds. They were made incredibly fast and incredibly cheap, mostly reusing animation from pre-existing shorts and films, including Three Little Pigs and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Within a few days of the attack on Pearl Harbor, the US Treasury requested a short from the studio asking citizens to complete their income taxes, which were now vital to funding the war. Wanting to impress the Treasury, Walt promised to have the short ready by February 1942. This gave them less than two months to work on the storyboards, animate it, ink and paint it, photograph it and print it, far less than their usual schedule for an animated short. Staff worked 18-hour days, with many sleeping at the studio and the animators delivering final animation without a rough stage. Incredibly, the short, entitled The New Spirit, was delivered ahead of schedule, and while Walt was displeased with the quality, he was content to at least have delivered on his promise. Every dollar you spend for something you don't need, is a dollar spent to help the Axis. The US Treasury had promised the studio $8,000 to cover costs for the short, but when the request for money was sent through to Congress, it prompted a scathing debate. The anti-Roosevelt faction leapt on the request as a means to attack the current administration, calling it a waste of money and trying to frame Walt as a war profiteer, which prompted a further attack on Walt in the press. In fact, not only had the studio made a loss on the film, they had even distributed the film for free. When the new spirit was released, the public response was warm, and a Gallup poll highlighted that 37% of audiences had been convinced by the short to do their income taxes. This success eventually convinced Congress to release the funds to the studio, and there were further requests for shorts. One from the Secretary of Agriculture for a short on American Food Production, called Food Will Win the War, and one from the War Production Board's Conservation Division encouraging people to donate their cooking oil to the war effort, called Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Firing Line. Following the release of the new Spirit though, the studio had received angry letters from some audiences disappointed to see them engaging in propaganda. This only solidified Walt's discomfort with producing any kind of propaganda at the studio. One of the things we are fighting for, he said at the time, is the right for all people to think, read, and speak as they will, not to have others' views foisted upon them. Despite further requests, Walt refused to produce any more propaganda shorts, especially as they were using up Disney resources in a way he was not comfortable with. Producer Jock Whitney, who had been instrumental in commissioning the Good Neighbor films, found a way around Walt's objections. He urged Reader's Digest to offer to fund a series of shorts on the brainwashing techniques of Nazism, fully covering the costs. Despite his reservations, Walt agreed on the series, and the four films produced represent the most fascinating of the propaganda shorts, all of them supervised by Joe Grant and Dick Humer. This is their hereditary passport, with space for 12 future children. A subtle hint Germany needs soldiers. The first, originally called Donald Duck in Axis Land, featured an entirely original scenario where Donald Duck has a nightmare of being a factory worker in Nazi Germany. During development, Disney Studio composer Oliver Wallace had an unexpected hit with his song, De Führer's Face, and the song was incorporated into the short, contributing to its eventual title. De Führer's Face also became a huge success, winning the Oscar for Best Animated Short in 1943. The second, Education for Death, was suggested by Reader's Digest themselves, an adaptation of the recently published Education for Death, The Making of the Nazi, by Gregor Zimmer, an American teacher who lived in Germany until the start of the war. The short, perhaps the darkest work the studio has ever produced, depicts the Nazi's psychological brainwashing of the German people through the story of one German boy, from his birth to his death. Even today, it's still an extraordinary piece of work, disturbing and devastating, with some of their best animation of realistic human beings, and the characters speaking entirely in German. By the third short, the artists had started to move into less didactic territory, Reason and Emotion was also based on a book, War, Politics and Emotion, by Jeffrey H. Bourne. It explores how Hitler had manipulated the German people by suppressing their sense of reason and exploiting their emotions. But the short begins with no mention of Nazism at all, instead using an American setting to establish a baseline for the relationship between reason and emotion. The short was nominated for an Oscar in 1943, but while the concept and animation are strong, its outdated gender politics and body shaming work against it. It does, however, feel like a precursor to Pixar's 2015 film Inside Out. That master rabble rouser destroys reason by preying upon the weakness of emotion with fear, sympathy, pride, and hate, just as he did in the minds of the German people. The final reader's die just short. Chicken Little is the only propaganda short to have had a life after the war, aided by the fact that it makes no direct references to Nazism or the war itself. Instead, the story of Chicken Little is used to highlight the dangers of totalitarianism. There had been plans for more direct visual references to Nazism, but those were removed in the development stages. In 1943, the US Treasury came back to Walt, requesting a follow-up to the new spirit. The new short was called The Spirit of 43, but rather than creating an entirely new short, they simply recycled the ending and gave it a new first act. Each of the propaganda shorts had come at the request of an outside organisation, further proof of Walt's discomfort with the form. However, the studio did produce one more piece of propaganda, one that became a personal project for Walt, driven by his desire to make a meaningful contribution to the war effort. It would be perhaps the strangest Disney animated feature ever produced.
1: And the says, he is the master race. The higher right in the Hoorah's space. The enormous flying range and destructive power of these planes will transform the entire surface of our planet into a battlefield.
0: The one war theme project Walt took a vested interest in was an adaptation of the non-fiction book Victory Through Air Power by aviation legend Alexander P. de in which he presented an argument for shifting focus away from army and naval tactics towards a more robust aerial strategy. The book had been released within months of the attack on Pearl Harbor and had become a huge success, topping the New York Times bestseller list and prompting debate in both the US government and in public discourse. Walt saw real merit in Saversky's hypothesis and decided to adapt the book into an animated feature. It was a strange subject for animation, a set of theoretical ideas rather than a narrative with characters and action, but Walt wanted to assist in shifting public opinion, and thus the military, towards what Saversky proposed. Many of the studio's top artists were brought in to develop the film, which would be an ambitious and expensive one. It begins with the history of aviation, from the Wright brothers through to the start of the current war, before moving into a graphic representation of Saversky's ideas. Everything they had done so far with the training films would here be employed on a grand scale, with animation that was, if not up to the standard of Bambi, at least up to the standard of that of Dumbo. Saversky, who was a celebrated war veteran as well as an aviation designer, was brought on initially as technical advisor, providing the animators with detailed sketches of the aircraft proposed in the book. Walt was enamored with Saversky and decided they should take it one step further and have him appear in the film himself, providing talking head narration to complement that given by actor Art Baker.
1: We can carry the war now over the head of his army in it, strike directly at the source of his power, his war industries. And by destroying these war industries, Automatically disarm and paralyze his fighting forces.
0: Director H.C. Potter was brought in to handle the live action sequences, something that the studio had little experience with outside of the combination scenes in The Three Caballeros. He would also have to guide the inexperienced Seversky through appearing on screen. Victory through air power caught Walt right between his ambition and the reality of the war. He wanted to do justice to Zawirski's book by creating a lavish and impressive piece of entertainment that would clearly communicate its central thesis. At the same time, there was the pressure of money, as no one was willing to cover the costs of the expensive film, but even more so, the pressure of time. If the film was going to make an impact on public opinion and help shift the war in the Allies' favour, it needed to come out as soon as possible. On top of that, the initial enthusiasm for Seversky’s theories was starting to waver, many seeing his proposal of bolstered aerial combat as a flawed system. In the film, Seversky criticises the US plan of island hopping through the Indonesian archipelago and the intervening islands towards Japan, but this plan was already in motion and working effectively. His futuristic aircraft designs were also a touch too far-fetched to be possible, and with each passing month, the chances of the film having any sort of impact were lessening. Walt also had an issue with getting the film into theatres. The studio had a complicated distribution relationship with RKO Radio Pictures, and as it had been initially with Fantasia, RKO did not have a lot of faith that the film would be a financial success. After they passed on distributing the film, Walt was forced to look for help from another studio, in this instance, United Artists. Unfortunately, the film did not achieve the success or the impact Walt had hoped for. While some military insiders were complimentary of the film, the critics and public were relatively indifferent to it. Major Seversky and Walt Disney know what they're talking about, wrote film critic James Alkey, for I suspect that an awful lot of people who see victory through air power are going to think they do. I had the feeling I was sold something under pretty high pressure, which I don't enjoy, and am staggered at the ease with which such self-confidence on matters of such importance can be blared all over the nation without cross-questioning. There were reports that the film was viewed by Winston Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt, but it is still unconfirmed as to what they thought. In the court of public opinion, the film wasn't enough to change military tactics, and many found that this distillation of Saversky's ideas revealed their inherent flaws rather than sold them.
1: No nation has a monopoly on this kind of air power, and when it comes, there can be no real defence against such an attack.
0: Victory Through Airpower was not a financially driven project for Walt, but he assumed that if he made it look impressive enough, that would be enough to get audiences in. Instead, the film would be yet another flop for the studio, who out of seven feature films had only turned a profit on two. For the most part, Victory Through Airpower is now thought of as an historical curiosity, in part because of its role as a piece of propaganda, and also because it has been mostly unavailable to the public. It never received a re-release, though the History of Aviation section was later recycled for television, and unlike The Reluctant Dragon, is very hard to find today. Its only major release since 1943 was as part of the Walt Disney Treasures DVD release, Walt Disney on the Front Line in 2004. Like all the films in the wartime era though, victory through air power is worthy of re-examination. While Saversky's theories are unsound and the racial stereotypes are uncomfortable, the animated sequences are spectacular, demonstrating a shift in animation towards a rich, striking graphic approach. Seversky’s arguments are presented in clear and emotionally charged detail, and where possible, the animators amplify it with rousing, often thrilling action sequences that hold your attention despite the dry subject matter. At its heart, it's still a piece of propaganda, but not one without technical merit. Joining me to chat about the Disney propaganda films is someone you've heard me mention many, many times on this podcast, but you've never actually heard the voice of before, ink and paint producer and editor Alex Amster. Alex, welcome to Ink and Paint. Hello, pleasure to be here. When we were talking about the in-between episodes and planning out what they would be, and I mentioned we could possibly do one on the films that Disney made during the war, you jumped at that. It was probably the the one idea that we've had that you were the most enthusiastic about. Why was this idea something you were really intrigued by? Well, I'm just a bit into the war stuff in general,
1: um, and I had looked at some of the looney tunes ones in the past so I hadn't seen any of the disney ones until now and it's just it just tickles my interest in a way that makes me excited and now I feel like I've bitten off more than I can chew so hopefully I do I do this
0: justice what about them excites you what what about the idea of looking into propaganda as an idea during a war period what about that excites you well i guess you
1: know doing history in high school and and learning about things and watching documentaries i mean we we learn so much about Particularly how the Nazis used propaganda and how other totalitarian uh, countries and stuff use propaganda, and I suppose we didn't or, or we don't think about it a lot from our point of view, the Allied point of view, how they use the propaganda um, as well to to do the to do the opposite. And, you know, watching these shorts and seeing how that actually played out has been pretty eye-opening, I think.
0: It's something that, you you know, in my research, it was something that was quite a point of contention for Disney was around the connotations of what that word actually meant. And it really is that thing of, like, propaganda is propaganda for for the people to whom it's not speaking to. For us, like, for audiences in this period, most general audiences would have looked at something like The New Spirit and just gone, oh, that's... That's a film telling me to do my income taxes. And then they'd look at what was happening in Nazi Germany and go, but that's propaganda. When actually it's the same thing, it's just depending on what your perspective on that propaganda is. What were your expectations of these films before you started researching them, before you started watching them? What did you think you were going to see? I don't know. I didn't really have much context for this,
1: to be honest. So it was all kind of a bit of a surprise and just, yeah, like I said,
0: eye-opening and interesting. I mean, it's one of those urban myths... With these films that, you know, whenever I'd heard about Disney, the Disney films during the war before, I'd always heard words like, oh, they're unavailable or they're banned or they don't want you to see them and that kind of stuff. And it was quite a surprise to research them and feel like they're not, to find out they're not banned, they're very easily accessible, not in great quality because they're all on YouTube, but you can see them, you can read about them and there's no, there's no erasure involved in what, in their history of talking about them. They just, they're very present and available. So there is kind of... This weird, the, like the reputation of these films, is probably more um, more pervasive than the films themselves. Necessarily, we have an idea of what we think they're going to be. It's similar to like the way of approaching the Good Neighbor films, where there's a where you think you know what you're going to walk into, but actually the reality is very very different. So yeah, what did you make of them? I mean, I think overall, I was trying to kind of you know go back and put myself
1: into the the sort of shoes of someone who would have been seeing it then, and I think one of the most striking things that I've sort of taken from it overall, particularly with the ones that more directly represent the Nazis, is just kind of like how much they actually knew during the war or how much of a picture they had of it. I didn't realise that all of this stuff was as common knowledge in the middle of the war as it is now. Um, So kind of seeing that being shown to audiences and also just the way that, you know, some of it's comical in the same way that like, Mel Brooks would send up the Nazis, like Disney did that in the middle of the war, like it's so weird to see that. And I think that so much of the way that we sort of remember it was almost like watching these shorts. And I'm kind of like to myself, did Disney influence our perception of it? Or was that just going to happen anyways? You know what I mean? Like it all seemed very, there's not much difference between like Jafura's face and like Jojo Rabbit
0: in a funny way, is what I was thinking. No. And like, it's very interesting to see how Carefully, they choose when to reference the insidiousness of Nazism, of which they don't, even with what they know, they still have no concept of just how bad it really is. But the way they choose to, use, to how do they choose to approach it with something like Defura's Face, where it is very funny, with this undercurrent of menace through it, or something like Chicken Little, where it's, we're talking about it, but we're not going to mention it by name, to something like um, Education for Death, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly disturbing and incredibly direct that they're choosing very carefully how what they need to pitch how they're going to pitch it and what effects they want to have on the audience at the time they're not being haphazard with 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 their uh with what they're trying to say with them. They're not being haphazard with their methods. They're not not—they're not just kind of throwing things out there without any understanding of their consequence or what their importance are, which I guess has come comes back to do with the fact that they just were not comfortable making them at all. And it's great seeing that towards the end, they're trying to make propaganda, fulfill the brief that they've been given without having to actually do the thing they've been asked to do. Um, the fact that Chicken Little, which I remember seeing as a kid, like as soon as I started watching it, I was like, I've seen this before. I've seen this many times before, but I never realized that it was a piece of, of anti-totalitarianist propaganda. And of course, as soon as you know that, you can see it hidden in there. But in a way, it's kind of like they start off with something as um, blunt as The New Spirit and end on something as subtle as Chicken Little. It's a really great intelligent um, evolution of what that form can be and how they, what their relationship with that form can be. Definitely, definitely. And so, like, a question I have for you was,
1: with the shorts in particular, these are just being shown before regular movies?
0: Like, that's how they were presented? Is that is that right? Yep. So, they would have just taken the place of the other animated shorts they were making. And they made a lot of... One thing I ha- we haven't covered and won't, because this episode would then just go for hours, is they were also making other short subjects themed around the war. So, having characters like Donald and Pluto were the two in particular that were, you know, in army training, on army bases, working for the army, working for um, the forestry services, that kind of stuff. So, there was a presence of, of, of the war in the other shorts they were doing, but they were never directly addressing what was happening in Europe and what was happening in the Pacific. These are the only ones where they were doing that. And so, yeah, they would have played in the usual pre-film program before um, feature films the way that a normal short would do all the other companies are doing exactly the same thing. There are newsreel shorts, there are shorts from other companies, there are live-action shorts, so it would have just kind of, they would have fitted into kind of that structure. And something like The New Spirit and Spirit of 43 are basically like, they're basically ads, they're basically like the advertisements you'd have before before a film, as are the other two, the, other two, um, the one on cooking oil and the one on, um, on food production in the US. They would have basically just been the equivalent of commercials. How effective do you think they are as pieces of propaganda? Looking at them now, you know, 60, 70 years removed, how effective are they? I was
1: just thinking then about, like you said, the new spirit versus Chicken Little. And and I actually didn't make any notes for Chicken Little because, like, I think after you watch these other ones and you get the Chicken Little, it it is so different and almost... It's very easy to watch that and not understand that it is propaganda. And then you start to think about like, well, like you said, the new spirit is much more of an ad. Chicken Little is is much more subtle. And then, you know, that makes me think, you know, about, again, just propaganda as a general thing, like the psychology of it. How does it work? What does it mean? And so I guess it would have been different levels of effectiveness. Something like Chicken Little now feels more scary to me than the other ones for some reason. You know what I mean? Because it's like that's that more... Like you said, it's not obvious what they're trying to say. And so you might see that and think, Oh, that was a nice little short, but then it would tick over in the back of your mind, you know.
0: It it has the the the, the beautiful thing about Chicken Little is that it gives you the capacity like that quote that we, you know, would've I would have quoted earlier about Disney's what Disney thought of propaganda of like, you know, people should be allowed to come to think what they need to think and come to that that place themselves. That Chicken Little as a piece of propaganda kind of allows you to do that because it doesn't make its thesis entirely clear. It asks you a series of questions and gives you a series of provocations, and then asks you to kind of make your decision on that, as opposed to something like De Face or a lot of the the, uh, government propaganda shorts, where at the end, they have to deliver this big rousing uh, statement on what it is you're supposed to have gotten from this short, like the way the New Spirit ends with that sequence of looking at the factories and looking at the planes. And even like the Canadian shorts- um, with you know just kind of finishing off with these big rousing statements on american power and um allied power chicken little doesn't do that it kind of it ends on a massive downer um in a similar way that education for death does but it leaves you having to question what exactly is it that i've seen they've also changed the end of the story which in itself you have to go as an audience member why did you change that ending why does chicken little not get away why does the wolf win in the end so that's kind of the beautiful thing about it is that it's it becomes a series of provocations as opposed to just Blunt propaganda delivering a very clear message
1: to its audience. And I suppose there's kind of two different angles too. There's the angle of like fighting the Axis powers, which is a very pressing issue, which is the main issue. And then there's the other thing which I suppose the US did for the majority of the 20th century, which was to try and convince everyone that they're... Democratic capitalist world was better than other kinds of worlds, um, which I think is playing into it too. And probably for the first time, I would say, because obviously after World War Two, we started to get communism and all of that and all these different um ideas and that's when the u.s
0: doubled down on trying to be correct but also the American dream like you know by saying that we are a country that can produce enormous amounts of um, food stocks so that we have tremendous industries all those all the things that are highlighted in in these particular shorts and actually to a certain extent also in victory through air power of you know tactical ingenuity and the like, the importance of American resources it sets you up this idea of american might which then becomes so important after the war because then they have to take advantage of that might and build the concept of what america is going to be after the war because there is such a clear difference between what america is like before the second world war and after the second world war the, that's when the kind of capitalist consumerist american dream really takes t- like takes its place i mean one of the things that is very impressive about these the short, we'll talk about the shorts before we just quickly go on to victory through air power but one of the things that i find so imp- um impressive about them is how technically adept they are like obviously there are ones where you know you have the canadian um, war bonds trailers which are reusing animation and then the, the new spirit is clearly made very fast and you know shows all of its limitations but then you have something like um reason and emotion which is beautifully animated and incredible like graphically very fast like graphically very arresting because you've never seen anything quite like it in, in Disney animation before but then you also have something that is so sumptuously beautiful as Education for Death and like it's a sh- it's a short with realistic human figures animated better than they've ever been animated before in terms of Disney animation and a short entirely in German that they've committed so strongly to this idea of trying to be as um authentic as possible in this depiction of Nazi brainwashing that they're going to do something as bold as have a short where everybody is speaking in German so that the characters that you're supposed to feel sympathetic for and the characters you're supposed to feel um antagonistic towards are both speaking the same language it's just kind of like if it's breaking down the it's breaking down the the image of the Germans as inhuman by showing that it's not the Germans that are inhuman it's the people that are leading them that are inhuman
1: making you you know you're meant to relate to the
0: family early on you know who's having the
1: and all that, you're meant to think, oh, that's just like me. But then I'm all of a sudden being told how, what I can name them and and how they're going to grow up and what they're going to think and if they're going to be told an accurate version of Sleeping Beauty or <laughs> or or what
0: the gr- lovely thing about this short source was that you're given ways into them you're given emotional um anchors to go to to kind of ground yourself within them um as opposed to them just being like some of them are which is just a series of information you have the little boy that you see grow up and go from being an innocent little boy to being a nazi soldier who will eventually die with so many other nazi soldiers you you have a connection with the with with reason and emotion in both of the characters in that you have a connection with chicken little you ha- certainly have a connection with donald duck and like the surrealist nightmare of Defura's face is really um thrilling and exciting and very r- reminded me a lot of watching um Chaplin's Modern Times that idea of a human being that is thrown into the the meat grinder essentially of of industry and the inhu- like an, an inhuman factory line that was what the Nazis essentially what they, you know they're proposing the Nazis are turning people into a, a factory assembly line and so then you've got sophisticated storytelling happening in these as well as very subtle, slight advances in the animated form, which I guess brings wanting to bring up Victory Through Air Power, which is a film that n- almost none of the listeners will be able to have access to because the only way I've had to find it in the very deep recesses of the internet, I found a copy of it. Though of course there's nothing uncomfortable about it except for the you know the racist stereotypes around the Japanese army. Um, but yeah, what did you make of Victory through Air Power as a film? <laughs> it was a little bit hard to pay attention to
1: because it's an hour of of you know explanation and talking, um, and I just overall thought like I just can't. I, I, and same with a lot of this stuff, I just can't imagine something like this now. Um, like, could you imagine going to the cinema to see a movie uh, explaining why drone warfare is the way to go? I mean,
0: I can't. I can't imagine it working then. Like. That's the thing I find so strange about it is that it's it was never going to work. It's a, it's a nice idea, but it's just too abstract a concept to actually be connect for an audience to connect with. Versus the shorts, this would have just been the
1: feature of the night, right? Like you would have paid a movie ticket to go and watch this. So, yeah, who would have who
0: would have elected to do that when there's like normal movies to see? <laughs> But there's also some really, I mean, the Saversky um, talking heads are fine. Like, they're not overly interesting. And certainly the second half of the film, when they're going into Seversky's theories, is nowhere near as interesting as the first half. But, that, like, the animation in this film is remarkable. It's particularly remarkable when you consider the fact they have no money. They have no money except for what what government contracts are bringing in. Um, No one is funding this film. They're funding it entirely on their own when, you know, the Bank of America have said to them, you cannot make another feature film. They have Alice and Peter Pan and Wind of the Willows sitting there stagnating because they can't release them. And yet he chooses to make this, this giant animated epic about the power of um, aerial tactics. And, like, again, I remember watching, it was funny when it started, I realised I'd seen half of this film before because the history of aviation sequence had been reused for the television education films they made in the 60s um, and 50s. So, looking at it in kind of the wider scope of of the story of animation to go from, if this film sits between Bambi and, you know, in the Good Neighbour films and the Package films... It's very sophisticated. Like, there's tremendous artistry in this film.
1: Well, and that was what I thought, because I had uh, read most of your notes and I watched the training video for the, the riveting, um, which was a riveting video, I must
0: say. <laughs> um, <laughs> you were waiting to make that pun, weren't you? You've been sitting here like, well, I'm going to talk to Daniel and I'm going to make that pun and I'm that, that's going to be my stamp on this podcast. No, I'm actually a bit embarrassed that I actually did that but anyway no, no keep it in <laughs> it's my order to you that you must keep it in
1: um when i was watching Victory through, through air power it was almost like oh they've gone from making an instructional video for the um aeroplane company lockheed to doing this like this is more of a instructional video or a documentary or you know and realizing that disney sort of Seem, seemingly invented an educational video in a funny way because, like, I suppose we take it for granted now. Like, why wouldn't you have a little five-minute video that explains how to do something? I mean, that's what we do every single day. We go on YouTube and we say, how do we sand a bench? Um, and some people make little animations about that kind of stuff. But to see, like, almost the first, maybe even the first version of something like that, and then to see Victory Through air power, and just think to myself, they've just expanded on... That idea in a funny way, and added in the the rest of it to
0: go from something as incredibly rudimentary as um, the the aircraft ribbit video, which is so is so simple and kind of re- like revelatory to watch it in realizing its simplicity, but to go from something as rudimentary as that to the sequence in Victory through Air Power where he's showing the um it's the circle where you've got all of the different type ways of uh, the, of the army and the navy uh, attacking you know. Germany but that they can't get th- they're trying to, to show how difficult it is to break through on land and how much of an advantage it would be to go through air um, that it does so in a in such a in a really clear but very sophisticated fashion by comparison to what they would have only done a year before. It's kind of like with the with the, with um, watching the Three Caballeros, where you see you see a technique evolve before your eyes in the course of a film. With these war films, you're watching these techniques of how to do an educational film in animation, taking astronomical leaps and bounds. It's kind of insane to think that you can go from something like the Rivet film to Victory Through Air Power in the course of a year. In terms of just the sophistication of this is our message. This is what we have to say. This is the way we can say it in the clearest possible fashion. And then, like, you know, having been a kid who grew up watching a lot of the the Disney animated um uh, educational films on the history of space and that kind of stuff as a kid, it's quite amazing to see where these techniques actually come from and seeing them advance. And, in a, you know, for Victory 3, Air Power might be b- quite dull at points, but there are points where it's very rousing. Like, the ending is very... Watching an eagle fight an octopus is not a thing I'd ever think I'd see in a Disney film, but it's it kind of hits you because it's so emotive and powerful.
1: And exactly like you're saying, you know, the context of when and why this was made and, you know, is it entertainment, is it propaganda, is it a documentary... I guess it's all of those things, right?
0: Yeah. And what's the lasting impression, to kind of finish up talking about the propaganda shorts, what's the lasting impression they've left um, for you, not just of them them as films, but also of Disney's approach to propaganda and the war effort?
1: Well, I think the main thing that I've thought about after watching all of these is just like, you know, what would it be like now if there was, you know, another world-scale war? Obviously, it would be way different for various reasons, but it just got me thinking that, like, what would it take to have a proper enemy again in the way that they did, in the way that the Allies did in World War II? The Allies had an enemy in the Axis powers, and, you know, whether you agree with war or not, it's hard to say that you wouldn't have wanted to fight the Nazis, right? And we found out they were so much worse afterwards anyway. So, you know, we everyone agrees that was bad. Um, but, you know, these days things are typically more complicated and there are usually two sides to a lot of stuff. And getting behind a war effort, I think, is a really foreign thing to us, thankfully. You know, thankfully it's foreign to us, but we're also a bit more culturally and politically minded in such a way that we kind of disagree with the idea of a war effort as well. So seeing these things, especially the spirit and the the frying pan, that was, I think the frying pan one is my favourite, because what a crazy concept to donate your kitchen fat to make bombs. I had
0: no idea that was even a thing. I had no idea that that was an that was an initiative they had during the war. Yeah, it would that of all of the ones that was the one that in terms of learning about what America was like cuz also the great thing that's about these propaganda films looking at them now decades later is that you get to see they give you a window into what um what America or the particular country was like at the time. Like you know the um keep calm and carry on poster from the UK like giving you a moment of understanding exactly how close they were to being invaded and like that that kind of uh mentality of we know it's going to get really bad, we just have to hold this together. Like, that gives you such a glimpse into what the mentality in the UK was as, you know, the you know the Dunkirk evacuation is happening. These shorts also give you a great view into what are some of the mechanisms that need... Because Disney is not interested in trying to change people's minds in terms of their political thinking around, you know, the enemy. Of course, they have to, like, in some degree, but he's, you know, they're being very careful. But they would be able to see things like... You have to do your income tax because that's important for the war effort or supporting American ind- industries or saving your cooking oil and donating it. like Stuff like that. Or like, you know, thinking about your savings like the way that um The Spirit of 43 does. It gives you a glimpse into exactly what life was like in America in the war for those few years reflected in these shorts. And then also what it is that the, f- the government felt the people needed to know. What kind of information that needed to be imparted to the general public? Because I mean, with the training films, it's just these are the things you need to to know as quickly as possible. Because we've got it, we we you know we're very behind. We need to jump in and do something about this. But for the public, it's about what do we need to educate them on? And we can look back now in two thousand and twenty and go look at what it was that we in. Because I mean, also the idea of a corporation. I mean, Disney's not a corporation yet. It's a barely. It's a studio that it barely exists. That's on the brink of collapse. Um, at this point. But the idea of a studio contributing propaganda is such an, a foreign concept to us now. It just, the way that we, the way that our world works and the way that information, the transference of information is so different now that these kind of works couldn't exist now. This kind of um, information delivery just wouldn't work. The other thing about
1: all of these that really I sort of found fascinating um, in retrospect was just some of the sort of stylistic choices. And the the one that sort of jumped out to me at first was the way that they kept using um, Beethoven's Fifth to represent the Nazis, right? Like every time there was a SWAT sticker or something or a big menacing anti-aircraft cannon or whatever, they would use the dun dun dun
0: dun. I ha- actually have a reason for why they use Beethoven's fifth so much. And it actually wasn't to do with the with the Axis powers, it was to do with the allies, because the opening four notes of Beethoven's fifth are the equivalent of the letter V in Morse code. You're joking. So V for victory. So the um V in Morse code is dot 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 dash, which is the same for which is the rhythm of the opening four notes of, of Beethoven's fifth. So that's the reason why it pops up so much in it because that was like a thing that was part of the wider government propaganda of using that because it was a sign of victory because it represented the letter V. Is that's
1: that's that is incredible? Is that something that the common person's going to figure out or understand? Because my interpretation was very different to that.
0: I have no idea. I mean, I imagine they're probably, you know, we're only looking at, like, a minuscule amount, like, portion of of the propaganda produced during the Second World War by America. So, I'm sure there probably was a lot of things to explain it, but it does pop up in so many of, I mean, almost every single one of the propaganda films, you have that moment of Beethoven's Fifth, the da-da-da-da. Well,
1: tell me if you think this is a bit much of a stretch, but what it made me think of was actually... um, John Williams because Oh, like the like the um the opening of Jaws. Like the Imperial March. Oh right, yeah. Or or whatever other sort of thing. A lot so much of this kind of visual and audio pairings that I think these um shorts had with a bit of classical music and kind of the scary Nazis or whatever, like it feels so influential to how a lot of twentieth century, you know, media ended up being. Like, like, you know, obviously Star Wars and and uh, the Galactic Empire is based on the Nazis. But my question is, like, how much of it was based on the Nazis or how much of it was based on maybe, you know, Disney's interpretation of it? Like, it feels very same, if that makes sense. And, you know, Beethoven's Fifth and the Imperial March... Similar pieces of music in a funny
0: way, right? I mean, it's it's possible that because of the prevalence of those kind, like what this, like, because of course, this question of like, what does the Second World War sound like? And propaganda is one way for us to know what that is. And again, I am no, no way an expert on this, um, and all I know is the Disney shorts that I've looked at. But I mean, it's an interesting hypothesis that. Our understanding of what the Second World War sounds like and thus what fascism sounds like and Nazism sounds like and totalitarianism sounds like. I mean, it's also the thing of like, you know, what totalitarianism sounds like in so in the Soviet Union um, under Stalin, which has, an again, a very robust marching quality to it. So, yeah, but I mean, it's also maybe that's, you know, to kind of take the thing of if if the use of beethoven's 5th that is present in the shorts is used for support of the allies and in particular america is it actually them doing the same thing what that the axis powers are doing by having these strong marches to represent their power by taking beethoven's 5th and use and like using it to their advantage to show their own sense of power i mean it's also you know beethoven is german and austrian like he's 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 one of their national treasures and so it's kind of co-opting their own sound to use to your own advantage. It's fascinating because that's, you know, one of the things that I've
1: learnt a lot about in doing this project with you is just, you know, the the idea of, have you ever heard that sort of saying, everything's a remix? You know, Disney is, is incredible at that because they draw from all these different things and then they create a new art form and you can, as you've done and as you'll continue to do, spend hours just kind of dissecting, you know, where do these things come from? What does it mean? There are so many ways to interpret it, um, you know, It
0: all gets sort of homogenised in an interesting way. That then becomes what's really fascinating about these films is what is it that we? Because I mean, you know, with the with the wartime period, um, with all of these the six feature films in this period, and then all of these shorts, it becomes that you're seeing what are the things that are being taken away, taken from these films and the making of these films that are going to become prevalent later down the track. So you know, for the for these films, it becomes the thing of how do you educate in a short clear, concise manner, which is going to become important when it comes to the television um, work they do in the 50s and 60s. It's kind of charting the DNA of something and how an art form is evolving. And, you know, it's that like that quote that Disney says about the training films that I would have quoted earlier about, you know, all other areas of industry taken go through enormous uh, evolution during a wartime period animation is no different it just we just needed to work out what that evolution was going to be to finish up i'm going to ask you the question i ask everybody because i find because it's a question i find the answer to always fascinating alex do you have a favorite disney animated classic
1: i Thought I did, and then recently it's changed, and I think you're going to be quite happy with the answer. What was what was it originally? Well, short backstory is that uh, I haven't
0: actually seen that many Disney films in my life. And yet you were like, yes, Daniel, let's do two years of spending going <laughs> through them all. I will listen to you talk for literally years about this subject. It
1: doesn't mean I don't find it amazing and interesting. Basically, I I didn't have it growing up. For some reason, I didn't really have Disney films growing up, so I missed that. And then I think a lot of people probably who are similar to me, um, and it's going to be a bit of a cliche thing to say, but most Disney films have come to me via uh, the lovely recommendation of various partners throughout my life. So I've basically only watched Disney films with someone else. And I thought my favourite was The Lion King, but you'll be pleased to know that a couple of weeks ago, I watched Beauty and the Beast and... I
0: think I'm fucking in love with it. Oh, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. You've 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 forsaken the Lion King for Beauty and the Beast. Oh. I think
1: I'm jumping ship. I, I never, I never in my life thought that I'd say that, especially from what I knew about Beauty and the Beast before it. And you know, I mean, it's it's not a hundred percent my cup of tea, but they just pulled the whole thing off in a really fun way. And like the Gaston song. And be my guest are just incredibly fun moments. Yeah. yeah, stunning. And it's and and it's changed my relationship to Mr. Burns completely as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I really should. What I actually should be doing while I'm researching these films is watching the entirety of The Simpsons because the amount of time The Simpsons comes up on this podcast and me, who was denied the ability to watch The Simpsons as a child, um, makes it very difficult to connect with any of those references. So I just kind of have to be like, oh, yes, no, totally. Mr. Burns, yes. Alex, thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule making this podcast to come and be a guest on this podcast.
1: It's been a pleasure. I look forward to hearing myself speak. <laughs>
0: One other feature project began development during the Second World War, one that would have seen Walt Disney Productions collaborating with a future literary giant. Based on popular folklore between British pilots, the Gremlins is perhaps the most famous abandoned Disney project. The idea of Gremlins, supernatural beings who cause damage to aircraft while they are in the air, originated from the British Air Force after the First World War, as a joke, pilots began to blame gremlins for routine aircraft damage, things that could be easily explained, and the folklore became popular, even spreading to other allied air forces at the start of the Second World War. One British pilot who was particularly enamoured with gremlins was Flight Lieutenant Roll Dahl. He had gained a reputation within the RAF as a gremlinologist, and while serving as assistant British military air attaché in Washington DC in 1942, he consolidated the oral histories into the short story Gremlin Law. As he was a serving British officer, he would need permission to have the story published, and sent it to the British Information Service for approval. It was read by producer Sidney L. Bernstein, who thought it might be good material for Walt Disney Productions. He forwarded the story to Walt, who was delighted and intrigued by its possibilities, and organised to meet Dahl as soon as possible. Negotiations soon began over the rights to Gremlin Law. The studio would illustrate the magazine publication of the story, using it as a test for potential character designs, and Dahl would be paid a small cash sum, which would be donated to the RAF Benevolent Fund, as well as royalties from any books featuring the characters published by Disney. Once the story was published, the copyright would transfer to Disney, the final contract was executed on October 1942, but included a clause that required both Dahl and the British Air Ministry to sign off on the script and the final film. This meant that, unlike every other commercial film project produced by the studio up until that time, Walt would not have sole final approval on the film itself. Storymen Jim Badrero and Ted Sears were tasked with developing, in collaboration with Dahl, the story of the project, now titled The Gremlins. Straight away they had to contend with the specifics of Dahl's gremlin mythology, which worked well for a short story, but proved difficult to translate to the screen. Sears consolidated all of Dahl's law in November 1942, which included two important rules. According to the lieutenant, wrote Sears, the first rule that should apply to all gremlin incidents is that the gremlins cannot cause any damage or make any repairs unless the result can be explained or accounted for by some actual physical occurrence. In another rule, Dahl had specified that only pilots who had been in combat were able to see the gremlins. This presented the story team with a number of problems. In gremlin lore, Dahl had purposely made it unclear whether the gremlins were real or figments of the pilots' imaginations, consciously or subconsciously. The story team were unsure which way they should fall, as either decision had narrative consequences. The other issue was that the Gremlins would, at least initially, be damaging RAF aircraft, essentially making them the antagonists. They needed to solve how to make them sympathetic characters without losing this fundamental aspect of their behaviour. The project also presented considerable technical challenges. Walt wanted the film to be a combination of animation and live action, with the animated Gremlin characters interacting with live actors as RAF pilots. This was before production had begun on The Three Caballeros, where the combination technique would be developed to a high standard, so it was unclear how this could be achieved on the Gremlins without considerable costs. It was becoming clear that this would be a major and expensive production. There was also the issue that the studio only had the rights to Dole's story, which was published in Cosmopolitan in December 1942, and not the wider oral folklore of Gremlins themselves, which was becoming increasingly popular both within Allied troops and the general public. Other animation studios, including Warner Brothers, had started production on their own Gremlins shorts, and Walt was concerned that they would fall behind. He asked the other studios to hold off releasing their films, with almost all of them agreeing to. By the start of 1943, the project was running into serious problems. With concerns increasing over the cost of combining animation and live action on such a scale, Walt decided that the film would be entirely animated. He informed Dahl in March, who admitted to being relieved, having always hoped it would be an animated film. This presented a whole new problem for the production team, The animators had still not perfected realistic human figures, getting away without them on Pinocchio, Fantasia and Dumbo by using slight caricatures. This would not be appropriate for RAF pilots. Essentially, they had exchanged one technical problem for another. Walt had also started to become frustrated with both the project and Dahl. He didn't like that he had relinquished full control of the project and butted heads continuously with Dahl on a number of details. For example, as a way of testing the designs, Walt allowed the Gremlins to feature in an ad for Lifesavers in Look magazine. When Dahl saw this, he was incensed and wrote to Walt objecting to the advertisement. In July, the story team suggested to Walt that the Gremlins may not work as a full feature, and suggested a short instead. On August 20th, A team of the top story men at the studio gathered for one last story meeting on The Gremlins to try and crack the project once and for all, if possible still as a feature film. The major concerns were all debated, but chief among them was how to make The Gremlins sympathetic. Despite lengthy discussions, it became clear that while it was a terrific concept, it just didn't lend itself to a full-length story. They continued to consider its possibilities as a short or even as the basis for a training film, but so much time, effort and money had been spent on the project that to end up with a training film seemed a waste. It became clear that despite everyone's best efforts, The Gremlins simply wasn't going to work, and with the box office failure of victory through air power, the risk simply wasn't worth taking. In December 1943, Walt informed Dahl that the project had been shelved And with that, the gremlins entered mythology as the Disney feature that never was. The character designs were used for the published version of the story in 1943, which is now considered a collector's item and were also used for a number of military insignia. the moment the US had entered the Second World War, Walt Disney Productions had fashioned itself to be as useful to the war effort as possible, in whatever capacity they could. In the meantime, apart from the propaganda and training films, military insignia and a few other war-themed entertainment shorts, all other operations at the studio were put on hold. The only non-war-related projects that could continue development were the long gestating Wind in the Willows, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, which had been put at serious risk before the war when Bank of America had demanded the studio cease feature film production until their loans could be covered. But even these had ground to a halt. In that sense, the war came at exactly the right time for the studio. While they didn't make any profit from any new projects during this time, the government contracts kept money coming in so that costs could be covered and staff could be paid and an enormous amount of work to keep everybody occupied. Despite their pride at having contributed though, it was a creatively stagnant period. They were making enormous strides in developing the art form, but that came out of necessity rather than exploration. Both Walt and his artists were creatively starved, dying to return to more ambitious ideas and more free thinking. From 1941 to 1945, they had been at the willing mercy of the U.S. armed forces. And then, just as suddenly as it had begun, the war ended. Almost overnight, the contracts disappeared, the men stationed at the studio left, and the studio's war efforts were over. Rather than offering a return to freedom, they simply found themselves still financially troubled and with no major projects ready to go. They were almost right back where they started almost. The Second World War had inadvertently saved Walt Disney Productions from collapse and had allowed them some time to put a pause on things and fix the leaks in their rapidly sinking ship. Now they just had to work out again who they were. Thanks for listening to this In Betweener bonus episode. And thanks as well to Alex for chatting with me on this episode. You can find Alex on Twitter at Alexander Amster and on Instagram at AmsterWave. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about Disney's work during the Second World War, including artwork, archival photos and links to many of the shorts mentioned in this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Hit us up with your comments, questions and even memories of your favourite Disney films and we'll be sure to share them on our upcoming episodes. You can email Daniel at inkandpaint.com.au www.inkandpaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. We'll be releasing new in-betweeners as we go along, so make sure you subscribe to Ink and Paint to make sure you don't miss any. If you enjoy this episode, remember to rate and review and to tell your friends about us. Ink & Paint Inbetweeners are created, hosted and written by myself, Daniel Laman, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Original music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, and the podcast is released through Switch, maketheswitch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink & Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics.